Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. It is Wednesday night and it is time for Friends and Fiction. So let's get rolling. I'm Kristen Harmel. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. And this is Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors, and librarians. Tonight, we are so excited to be welcoming Jean Kwok, the New York Times bestselling author of The Leftover Woman. But first, just a quick reminder to check out all the fun things going on in our Friends and Fiction community at friendsandfiction.com. There you'll find links to our bookshop.org page where our books and books from our guests are available at a discount, to the Friends and Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa, and to our weekly email newsletter sign up. You'll also find a link to our Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast, a new episode of which drops every Friday. On last Friday's episode, Christy and Ron talked to Rochelle Weinstein. Weinstein? Weinstein. Weinstein. Okay. About what to, what you do to me. And coming this Friday, Ron and Meg will be talking with Lola Akinmade Akrastrom about everything is not enough. It is not fair to have me try to pronounce two. Well, in your defense. Well in that your defense. Well Rochelle's name has a typo in it, so yes. that's why. Also, in your defense, better you than me. Yes. <laughs> okay. yes. Uh, Lola Akinmabe Akrastrom uh, is Good. coming this Friday with Everything is Not Enough, and that book is getting a lot of buzz. You can listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on our website at friendsandfiction.com. And over on the book club's Facebook page, the group is reading Bright Lights, Big Christmas, a book I've heard of. I've heard of that book. The latest New York Times bestseller from our very own Mary Kay Andrews. And you can join them for that discussion on November 20th. And don't miss their Friendsgiving celebration on November 16th. Well, as usual, guys, so many fun things going on in our community. It never stops. Like, it's so great. I love it. It makes me smile to hear it all, right? I totally agree. Absolutely. All right. Now, speaking of fun things, without further ado, let's welcome Jean Kwok, who the four of us all had the pleasure of hanging out with in Chicago over the summer. Jean Kwok is the award-winning New York Times and international bestseller of best-selling author of several novels, including Searching for Sylvie Lee, Girl in Translation, and Mambo in Chinatown. Her work has been published in 20 countries and taught in universities, colleges, and high schools across the world. She has appeared on the Today Show and Good Morning America, and she has spoken at many schools and venues, including Harvard University and the Tucson Festival of Books. Her novel, Searching for Sylvie Lee, was an instant New York Times bestseller and was selected for the Read with Jenna Today Show book club. Jenna has been chosen for numerous Jenna. Jean, her name is Jean. Jean, I know that. Jean has been chosen for numerous honors, including the American Library Association Alex Award and the Chinese American Librarians Association Best Book Award. Jean immigrated from Hong Kong to Brooklyn when she was five years old. And she worked, I still can't believe this, no matter how many times we've talked about it, she worked in a Chinatown clothing factory for much of her childhood while living in an unheated apartment. Jean is trilingual, and she now divides her time between the Netherlands and New York City. Her new novel, The Leftover Woman, was released on October 10th. Sean, can you bring Jean on? Welcome. Hi! Hi! Hi, everyone! Hi! I'm so glad to be here. Oh, my gosh. 
Oh, we are so happy to have you, Jean. Okay, so we are so excited to talk about this book. So The Leftover Woman is the story of Jasmine, a young Chinese immigrant whose newborn daughter was given away without her knowledge or permission. And Rebecca, the wealthy American mother who has adopted a Chinese baby, she thought had been orphaned. So there is so much to dig into here, including the way we see one another (laughs) or neglect to see one another based on our preconceived stereotypes. It's a novel that makes you think and it makes you reevaluate the way you look at the world. So Jean, can you begin tonight by telling us a little bit about what The Leftover Woman is about? And then one of our favorite questions, what is the book really about at its heart? Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, I think um, The Leftover Woman, you gave a really good summary of it. You know, it's about two mothers two worlds and one impossible choice because, you know, Jasmine was told shortly after she gave birth in China that her baby had died. She finds out a few years later that her daughter had not died, but had been given away by her no good husband Mm -hmm. to a wealthy American couple for adoption. And when the novel opens, Jasmine has followed her daughter to New York city to try to get her child back. And, you know, the the reason for this is, of course, China's one-child policy, which was in place for many decades. And that required families to have only one kid. And, you know, like many other families in China, that husband of hers, you know, found out they had a girl and he wanted a boy. The only way to have a boy was to get rid of their existing daughter. So um, the novel's told by two people. It's told by Jasmine, the birth mother, but also by Rebecca, the adoptive mother, who is a wealthy publishing executive and who has a happy home, a beautiful um, husband and a high-powered career and an adopted Chinese daughter she adores. So indeed, these two women are on a collision course. Wow. So good. It's such a compelling storyline. And I think, you know, everyone can sort of put themselves right there in that situation. And it's so great too, because it tears your loyalty so much Mm. because they're both, you know, you want, you're cheering for both of them. You want both of them to win, but can't. Um, Right. Right. I mean, that's exactly kind of the dilemma. You know, actually an early reader said to me, like, I actually, the the reader said, you know, you should really make Rebecca into the villain of the novel. And it would be a simpler, you know, she thought like better read because then Jasmine could be fighting against Rebecca for the whole book. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, you know, Jasmine could triumph or not. But I said, you know, I really do love Rebecca. And I also see so much of myself and us as modern women in Rebecca's story. Like what you said earlier about what the book is really about, about juggling all of those different roles, trying to be everything to everyone and, you know, judging ourselves so harshly. And so I was like, I don't want Rebecca to be the villain. I love Rebecca as much as I love Jasmine. So the book is an interesting read because hopefully you are, you know, conflicted when reading it because you're like, oh my gosh, I love her and I love her and she's got a reason to have the kid and she's got one too. And then how in the world is this going to get resolved? So So I love it. It keeps the pages turning for sure. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about this amazing title. In chapter 21, Jasmine says, I was a leftover woman. I realized after everyone else had carved away what they wanted to see in me and taken what they desired, I was all that was left. I read that line twice and just sat with it for a little while, because I think it's a profound statement on what it means to be a woman in the world at times. So can you talk a little bit about what this title means to you? Well, you know, I think titles, since you four are all amazing authors, we have all had our trials and tribulations with titles, right? Yes. Where sometimes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Sometimes you've got the title and sometimes your editor is just emailing you 10 times an hour, like the launch is coming up and we need <laughs> a title. Like we cannot launch the book without a title. Or they um, send you a list of really terrible titles. Oh, yes. I know. I know. 
But I have to say, I can come up with some really bad ones, like really, <laughs> really like, you know, like the Jade Pavilion that sounds like a bad Chinese restaurant, you know, fortune <laughs> of cookie, like, no, no. Stupid love, I don't know. I would order from the Jade Pavilion, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think fortune of Beloved, like okay. Anyway, fortune of cookie. Like I think that's a pretty brilliant one. That might be my next um, title. No, but basically, the leftover women, like you said, has so many thematic resonances within the novel itself, and it really is about the ways in which we as women have to carve ourselves into different roles that are palatable in each environment and as immigrants, right? Immigrants, people who are displaced and as women, that we are moms, we are we are career women, we are friends, um, we are partners, we are so many different things to different people. And, uh, but in the novel, the title has a, a different significance, you know, in that historically, what happened was that in the one child policy, what they did was that the Chinese government swept down upon a culture that had always thought that we were, um, that our family line was perpetuated by men. And so officially girls married out of the family, boys continued the family line. And in a rural society, people had a lot of kids. It was just, I'm the youngest of seven. And, you know, you need those kids because a lot of times some of the children would die or um, the alternative was that there was no societal benefit. So it wasn't like there was health insurance or retirement. It was like, oh, you've only got your family or you could starve to death. So physically, that was a whole preference for boys. But also religiously, we follow um, ancestor worship, which means that we offer food, money to our ancestors to keep their souls alive. And you rely upon your descendants to do that for you. So when the Chinese government said that we will basically destroy your life if you have more than one child, what happened was that all of these families started trying to have boys at any cost. And the result is that right now in China today, we have 32 million more men than women. Oh While the birth God. rate, I know, the birth rate's 50-50. So what happened to those 32 million female babies, right? Who knows? I mean, all kinds of things. But the fact, so that's what the book is about. But the fact is, the government succeeded so well with their campaign to force families to have only one child that nowadays, especially modern, more well-educated Chinese women are kind of like, why would I go marry a guy and take care of him and try to bear him a son again? Like, they're like, you don't want me to have kids? Fine. Okay. And so um, the problem is that the birth rate has plummeted to such mm. an extent that the government's now worried about, you know, sustaining the economic growth. So what have they done? They've started a new propaganda campaign called the leftover women in which women who are of a certain age are no longer useful to society if they have not married and had kids wow. at that age yes that age is get this guys late 20s <gasps> so we're looking 26 27 yes those women are being branded as leftover women because wow. they're like, well, you know, you are like leftovers on a plate that are thrown away and not useful to society. So somehow it is still our fault. So that's the historical meaning of yeah. the leftover woman. That is unbelievable. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow. 32 million girls just. Yeah. Poof. Poof. Um, exactly. Poof. You know, it's interesting um, how few matriarchal societies there are, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Any more there were in the, you know, thousands of years ago. Well, Tom um, and I are watching um, Dark Whims, which is about, you know, it's the Tony Hillerman series that his daughter Anne is carrying on. And then, and it's about Navajo, the Navajo um, Indians. And the Navajo are a matriarchal society. Yes. 
Wow. Like the the Hyanya, the Hyanya, is that how you say it? From um the island of sea women? Maybe. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're anyway, it's kind of interesting in uh the clans in 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 Navajo, I I think I understand this. It's all matriarchal. Anyway, uh, Jean, you mentioned in the author's note that this novel is the most deeply personal novel since your debut, born from your own struggle as a woman in a traditional Chinese immigrant family. As we mentioned in the intro, you moved to Brooklyn from Hong Kong when you were five years old, and you were the youngest of seven children in your family. Would you tell us how your own experiences inspired and shaped this book? Absolutely. I mean, I definitely did not grow up in a matriarchal society. No. <laughs> um, so I, I'm the youngest of seven children. I am a girl. And so I'm the wrong gender. And in a hierarchy that's also determined by age, I was really at rock bottom. And mm. it was just very clear. I mean, my family, they really loved me. There's not a question about that. But the fact was still that I was held to a certain standard as a Chinese girl that I absolutely miserably failed to meet. You know, I was supposed to be obedient. I wasn't supposed to look people in the eyes. I wasn't supposed to have opinions. I was supposed to be a great cook, which I am very, very, very not. I was supposed <laughs> to be a great housekeeper, really terrible housekeeper to this day. Um, you know, so uh, all of these things kind of led to me being the black sheep of my family. And I was also like, I didn't speak English. I was very poor, um, like you said, when I came to the U.S. And I lived in an apartment in New York that was unheated. I worked in a clothing factory in Chinatown until, you know, I like basically until I was out of my childhood. And um my, I could tell at that time that the two choices in my life were basically the factory or finding a man to, who might be willing to marry me and like taking care of him and bearing him sons and cooking and cleaning for him. And my family despaired of ever finding a man willing to marry me because of the fact that they found me to be such a miserable excuse for a Chinese daughter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, so my only choice was to go to Harvard. So that's what I did. Because because um, going to Harvard is not like, oh, here, go to Harvard. Wait, so so yeah. when you were working in the factory, were you able to go to school? I did, but it was actually really hard because my father would pick me up in the morning. I mean, you know, he'd take me to school. And then after school, he would pick me up and he would take me to the factory. I'd work at the factory until like nine or 10 at night and then go home. And, you know, that's really late for a little kid. But my brothers who are in high school would actually go on to a second job waiting tables oh. at a restaurant until like two or three in the morning. Oh my So, gosh. um, yeah. And I had friends who would call me and call me and be like, where are you? You know, where are you after school? Um, and, you know, I was working in a factory mm. or um, I had this teacher who gave us these current events quizzes every day. And he said, there's no excuse for any of you to flunk these quizzes because you know, current events are really important. You need to be a world citizen. These are the big headlines. I mean, he was right in a lot of ways. And he was like, well, you know, you can just take a look at your parents' newspaper or you can watch the news or listen to the radio. Well, there were no newspapers in my house. Like, and I was working in a factory. Like I wasn't watching the evening news. Yeah. I couldn't listen to the radio. The factory sewing machines made too much noise. So I failed that test every single day and he never knew why I failed it because wow. when he asked me I would lie you know I had told one of my little friends who was like where are you after school why can't I call you um and I told her the truth she went home she asked her father about it who was a Yale educated lawyer and he said um she's lying because kids <gasps> don't work in factories uh, in America so I learned from a very young age not to tell people, you know, the truth of my life. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah. So it was, it was really hard. I mean, I could go to school, but all of my 
like all of my studying, all my homework had to be done on the subway or during breaks at the factory. And, you know, things that seem really simple, like the really fun assignments, like draw a picture of your room were a disaster for me because, you know, I slept on the floor on a mattress in this incredibly vermin ridden apartment and we didn't have markers. Like we didn't have markers or art supplies like or magazines to cut fun pictures out of, you know, all of those things are really, really difficult for a working class kid. Absolutely. Jean, I'm going to echo, we're getting comments. Um, Jackie Sunday says she would love to read your autobiography, and I have to agree. And Mitzi Shirk is saying, I am in awe of you. And I can tell you that all four of us yeah. on this screen yeah. are completely I mean, in awe of you. Under, like, the best circumstances, you know, I yeah. can't imagine. Yes. Wow. Okay. Let's talk about Jasmine. Um, we're going to switch tracks for a second while we are all just yeah. like washed in awe and wonder at who you have become and what you have done with your life. Um, but Jasmine, your character escaped a brutal marriage you talked about and has come to America in search of her daughter, which shows tremendous strength because she's leaving what everybody says she shouldn't. She's bucking society and and yet she struggles when she gets to America, partially because of the language and partially because people look at her through eyes clouded by preconceived notions. Talk about the challenges she faces and obviously ones you did too, both in China and here in America with that. Well, I think you guys are just such incredible readers because these are great, great questions. And, you know, I, if you know you want to read my autobiography, I mean, I basically put it all into my novels, right? Oh, all wow. of my novels yeah. are deeply, yeah, they're all deeply attached to my life and the things that I went through. And <clears throat> Jasmine is very much born of my own existence as a girl yeah. in a very traditional Chinese family. And I think Jasmine feels very much like she is, um, has no power and she is actually, unfortunately seen too much, but not in the way that she sees herself. So she was also left on the side of the road as a baby, another victim of the one child policy. And she was taken in by a family that basically saw her as a commodity and married her off at a young age. And it was really only when she found out that her own baby had been taken away from her in a kind of echo, an evil echo of what had happened to her, that she's kind of like, it's enough is enough. And I'm going to stand up and I'm going to take action. But when she comes to the US, she does encounter tremendous difficulty because she had gotten there by loaning money from the Chinese mafia. And the Chinese mafia is a real thing because one of my earliest memories is that I was standing behind the counter of a relative's house, I mean, a relative store in Chinatown. And I, um, like my head just peeked above the glass counter. So like just my eyes and the top of my head were above the counter. And suddenly I found myself looking down the barrel of a gun. And I, you know, it was like this really round metallic <sighs> black thing I was looking straight at. And um, since I have excellent self-preservation instincts. I did not move. I just like sat there and was looking at it. And my relative, I know my relative, like I remember put her hand on my head and like just gently shoved me underneath the counter so that I um, was not in the way of the bullet. Um, and that was the Chinese mafia coming to collect protection money as oh they did from stores. Yeah, stores in Chinatown. And I guess we were late with our payment. Um, so, you know, having borrowed money from basically human smugglers and the Chinese mafia, Jasmine is in a position where she has got to pay it back. No matter what she does, she's got to pay it back. But it's hard because she doesn't speak the language. She doesn't have the skills. She doesn't have the right paperwork. And so she's pushed to make increasingly drastic choices to survive in New York City. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Wow, we have so many questions coming in. <laughs> no, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But we want to try to keep on track talking about the leftover woman. So Rebecca in the novel is another main viewpoint character. She's a white American and editor-in-chief of a publishing house, and she and her husband, Brandon, have adopted a Chinese daughter named Phoebe. Can you tell us a bit about the character? I mean, you already told us that you were very sympathetic to Rebecca and about your decision to set her in the book, in the world of book publishers. That's interesting to all of us because we kind of know that world and you do too. Well, that was like the most fun part, right? To write Rebecca and that insider look at the publishing world. Because as the four of you know well as New York Times bestselling incredible authors, I mean, the publishing world has its own set of rules, which nobody tells you. And there are these official rules, which nobody follows. And then there are like the real rules, which somehow you're supposed to figure out and which we only figure out by trial and error and by having lovely friends like each other, where we're like, oh my God, this just happened. What am I supposed to do? Um, And so it was great to kind of have an insider look at that publishing world. But I also really identify with Rebecca just as a modern woman. Yeah. Trying to have a successful career. And, you know, she and her husband, she loves her husband, but she says at the very beginning, their friends call them beauty and the brains with her being the brains part. You know, he's like, he's great looking, he's talented, but he also says to her, you know, you are the real intellectual force of this relationship. And I kind of, I love that about Rebecca. I mean, Rebecca is amazing. And she makes big mistakes, as does Jasmine, over the course of the novel. And of course, her life starts to crumble until she manages to pull it back together again. But, you know, I have all respect for her as a well-educated modern woman who's trying to juggle all these roles. It's like, is there ever a day when you don't feel guilty, right? Is there ever... A time when you're not making a decision between should I, you know, is it, do I take the time to work on my book or do I take care of my kid or do I go out to dinner with my partner? And it just never feels like you're enough. So that that was what went into Rebecca. Well, Jean, we have so many questions coming in for you. Like Mary Kay said that I'm going to, um, like, I'm going to ask you a live question instead of my next question. Um, these are sort of similar and maybe we can, you know, kind of combine them. But, um, Annie Pace says, how were you able to prepare to get into Harvard? And, um, Nancy Wakely said, what kind of culture shock was it when you entered Harvard? Oh, wow. Yeah, those are great questions. You know, about preparing, you know, I I was lucky in some ways in that I'm extremely untalented in many, many things. Like I can't swim. No, 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 it's true. No, it's really, it's true. No, it really, people are like, oh no, I don't believe that. And then they hang out with me and they're like, wow, you know, that actually is true. You know, so like I can't drive. I'm extremely dangerous on anything with wheels and I can't swim. Like there's so many things that normal people can do that I really, really do my best, but I cannot do. But I did have one talent and that was, I was good at school and I could just do school. So I was lucky. I was good at school. And with that talent, you know, I was serious. You know, I wasn't like my friends who were also smart, but they had a safety net. You know, they yeah. knew that if things didn't work out for them, they had options. For me, it was really Harvard or bust because Harvard was the only school that my family had ever heard of. They, Yale was like not in the picture to my very insulated family um, or anything else. And you know, they'd heard of it and I knew I would have a full ride that if it's indeed blind admission policy. So if I got in, they would pay whatever was necessary for me to be able to go. And I thought the chances were best that, you know, my parents would actually allow me to go because they didn't think it was necessary for a girl to go to college. In fact, you know, I did enter as a physics major. I was a total math science geek 
until I became a writer. And when I was a senior in high school, I got a job at um, Sloan Kettering Laboratories in New York City. Oh, wow. I was, well, yeah, you would think so, except I came home, I had to tell my parents, and they were like, well, I'm like, this is a very prestigious job, molecular biology lab, Sloan Kettering, Cancer Research Center. It'll look so good on my college record, you know, preparing for college record. And the only thing they asked me was they said, well, who runs it? Is it a man? And I was like, yes, the head of the lab is a man, as they so often are. And they were like, no, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to take the job because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't considered appropriate for me to be working with a man. So that was the kind of situation I was in. So it wasn't like I had to go to school, according to my family. Um, so I was serious about going. Once I got there, you know, it was pretty rough. I mean, it was a, um, it was a real culture shock. And there were kids like me there, but there were a lot of kids from a very different, very privileged background instead. Uh, but I have to say, you know, it's like when you look at Rebecca, Rebecca was not, did not ask to be born into privilege, just as I didn't ask to be born into poverty. And the fact that she was born into privilege does not mean that she had an easy life. I mean, she has her own trials and tribulations and a ton of expectations from her family, from her father, that she feels like she cannot meet and that she's not good enough and that she will never be good enough. So we all have our own burdens in life, but it was a real culture shock indeed when I went to Harvard. I bet. <coughs> it would have been a culture shock <laughs> for me and I had no language barrier and went to, I mean, Jean, you are amazing. Yeah. I want to kind of swerve this way and talk about, and I keep thinking while you're talking about if the you of now could tell the you of then, listen, Jean, I know this sucks and you're 10 years old and you're working in the factory and you have to lie to your friends, but soon fifth season, the production house behind Severance <laughs> will be developing a series based on your 2014 novel Mambo in Chinatown, as well as one based on the leftover woman and the adaptation of your novel girl in translation will currently be in development at Warner brothers. So <laughs> That might help, but how exciting. Um, you said in a statement to Variety, I'm thrilled that there is room these days for stories like mine about women, ambition, and people of color. What can you tell us about the plans for adapting all of these novels and what it means to you to have these projects underway? Well, it is really exciting. I mean, all four of my books have been, are in development. So they've all been optioned. And The Leftover Woman really kind of flew off um, the market because it was optioned long before it was printed. I mean, it just wow. came out you know, it became available on 10 October, so about a week ago, but it was optioned as soon as the manuscript was done. Um, so we, it was preempted. And so I was, you know, that I was incredibly grateful for that. And it's thrilling that they're all in development in different ways. You know, some might be films, some might be limited series, some might be unlimited series. So that's exciting. And I know, you know, we were all talking before we came on live about being an author and kind of the pressure of the tour and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking that if I could look back to myself when I was an unpublished author and all I ever, ever wanted was to hold a copy of my book in my hands, you know, it's like, it's true. Like every day would be a dream come true that we all live now, right? To be yeah. the Definitely. authors that we are, to have the books that we have. Definitely. Absolutely. All right, we have one last question for Jean, but first we want to remind all of you out there to head over to friendsandfiction.com to find out more about our podcast and to sign up for our newsletter, which includes exclusive Q&As with our guests, like Jean's Q&A in today's newsletter, yeah. which um, and which always covers more than we can get to on the show. So subscribing is totally free, as is subscribing to the podcast. So make sure that you are signed up for both at friendsandfiction.com. Now, 
Jean, I'm going to finish today with another live question. Meg, um, Meg, who takes care of looking at our questions as we're doing the show, has said that you have more questions coming in than she has seen in almost any other episode. Um, I can imagine because I yeah. have so I have so many, many questions for you right now. <laughs> and I'm like, man, I talked to you about so much in Chicago, but I didn't know all of this. And I had no idea. Hush on it. I, I know. <laughs> and so Jean, I hope if you have a chance, you might drop by the friends and fiction page and answer some of the questions that are in the comments. Huh. Cause people have some fantastic comments. I'm going to end with one of the ones I like the best, which is from Carrie Soderman. And she says, Jean, what empowers you now? And when were you able to start making your voice heard? Oh, what an what an excellent question. I think that um, the most empowering thing I've ever done was really to become a writer and mm. to start working on um, having my true story be heard. And of course, you know, I was thrilled when I got into Harvard and it was great to get out of the factory and not have to return to that factory. But there's something so magical about books. And, you know, I think we're all readers first and then some of us become writers second. So we understand that journey from both sides. Just to lose yourself in a book, to be able to identify with the character, I felt really saved by books as a child because I found people in books that I, you know, connected to more than anybody I knew in my real life. I found inspiration and hope and solace in books. So I think that for me, it will always be in books that I find um, empowerment. Oh, wait, oh, I, I, have, I have to ask. <laughs> I have to ask, because this is one of our favorite questions on the show. What was the book when you were a child that made you feel like there were possibilities? Mm. You, you know, I really loved, um, there were so many books I loved. I think I would have to say Anne of Green Gables. Aww. I was a real Anne of Green Gables fan. And I just, you know, freckled, redheaded Anne who looked so much like me. I know. <laughs> but, but I just, I identified so with much her in so common. Much. So much. Yeah. I know. And, but, you know, that's the great thing about books, right? Is that you can have a soul to soul connection with a character and thereby with the author of a book because we all put bits of ourselves into all of our characters. And, you know, and I'm sorry. And Anne was just, I felt so much for like dreamy, you know, day, like creative climbing trees in trouble. And, you were bosom so. friends, right? <laughs> bosom friends. Absolutely. Bosom Kindred spirits, Kindred bosom friends. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so Jean, I, I you know, I, I feel like we could talk to you for so much longer. I, I mean, I, I think you're speaking the language we all speak and that's the language yeah. where we love books and words and emotions. And I, I just know our, our viewers out there are going to want to follow you and stay in touch with you. How can they do that? How can they find you online and on the road in the coming weeks? Well, I am, of course, on social media. So I'm on Instagram, um, Facebook, and whatever the heck Twitter is nowadays. Um, <laughs> but the, the easiest way to find information about me and about the leftover woman is, of course, my website. That's just my name, jeanquok.com. My events are there as well. So if anybody is in the area that I'll be going to, I would love to see you. I am in California, San Francisco today, and I'm in the California area for a few days. Then I'm heading to New York and Canada and then Iceland and Hawaii and oh, I, all wow. kinds of other places. So it's exciting. Uh, but the main source of information is my um, website. And I'd love to go on the Friends and Fiction page and try to answer as many questions as I can after we're done with the interview. So thank you, thank you guys so much. Oh, so thank you so much for being thank, here. Thank, thank you, Jean. You, you are so such a delight. Much. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Jean. And to all of you out there, please make sure to check out The Leftover Woman out now. Um, and if you go to one of Jean's events, please tell her we said hi. We all adore her. We would love for her to know. Oh, there she is. We, 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 would, we would love for her to know. See, Jean, Sean's trying to take you out already. I, I just have to say. <laughs> but then he put you back in. 
<laughs> oh, right, right, right. Um, no, but thank you guys so much for having me. I, I love being an honorary Friends of Fiction. So you are. You absolutely are. Well, thank you so much, Jean. We appreciate it. Good night, Jane. Good night. All right. Now, all of you out there, do not forget you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We will be back next week to welcome Lori Raider Day, the author of The Death of Us. We have such a fun episode in store for you, and we cannot wait. So thank you so much for being with us. We will have a brief after show tonight if you'd like to stick around for a few more minutes, and then we'll be back next week with more fun. Have a wonderful week, everyone, and see you in the after show. See you in a She was amazing, right? I just can't stop thinking about like, what is it inside of you? Like, what is it that separates people? Like, that makes give into it and fight their way out of yeah, right? Like, like how? Like, how do you have that much to overcome and just claw your way out of there? You know, it's it's just unbelievable. I, I have to think maybe as part of the immigrant experience. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Because you know that there, you have no, you either have, you have very few choices. Your choice is this yeah. or maybe you aspire to that. You know, I, I think it's also the magic of books. I, I mean, oh, you know, yeah. just to be able to, to see yourself in a story. And like she said, Anne of Green Gables on the surface had nothing in common. And then I wanted to be like, when were you reading Anne of Green Gables when you went from school to the factory and got home at 10 PM to do your homework? I mean, you're totally right, but it's just, it's, it's magical though, to think about the way that books can open worlds to you. And I think, I think that's why it's so important to keep fighting for kids to have access to books that can transport them you know, in, in, in the same they can way, see there's a different life, something yeah. else, Ab- something absolutely. Else. absolutely. And, to, and to identify with children, um, who look like them yeah. or who, who, who I, you know, um, I can remember growing up as a little kid in Florida. I never knew anybody who was a writer. Yeah. No, I yeah. never knew anybody that was a writer. Hmm. Yeah. Not one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I really knew anybody who was a writer until I was a writer. I didn't eat. Yeah, I actually I, true. Mary Kay was my first real friend. <laughs> I'm sorry. And I, I, I like poor thing. I was like, will you go out to lunch with me? <laughs> okay. I, okay I like, you don't have to whisper. This I want to know this. Listen. And you might not, and you might not remember, but at that moment where you like, I mean, I don't mean this, but you know how sometimes you're like, Oh God. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It's okay if you were. I mean, because I'm just saying, because like at that time, it wasn't like you guys were like great close friends and she had no idea if you could write. Right. You know? Well, uh, what I will say is that I, um, I was at my husband's company party and Patty's husband was the president of the company. (laughs) My husband had... My husband had only been working there a few months and I had nothing in common with anybody else at that party. Yeah. The other wives. We bonded. We were in the corner talking. Yeah. The other, the other wives were not like us. Mm -mm. And so when she said, I'm writing, will you go out to lunch with me? Of course. Of course. I mean, I think. um, I didn't know all that context. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you, you know, that makes me think, though, of just how quickly the four of us all bonded with Jean when we met her this summer. I mean, it's just, you, it, it's like you, I don't know, there's just something about words and story and creativity that, like, you could just recognize each other. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, you just see, not see a, a piece talk. of yourself. There's no idea. I mean, you get to the heart of the matter pretty quickly. I won't say it because I'm not going to like air her laundry on the show, but like the conversations that we were having 30 seconds into having met each other was like, it it is, you're right. It's unique. Like the things that you talk to your writer friends about immediately. There's not a lot of like, so what do you do for fun? (laughs) Tell me about your mother. But yeah, exactly. you know, tell me why you keep writing about <laughs> this really horrific thing. Like, 
you know something though? I think that is partially because we've already peeled some of the layers back. We've had to, to put our hearts and our souls into our books. So there's like, there's already that outer protective shell missing. And I think when you meet someone else who's also discarded that shell, like there's just sort of a, there's an instant connection. But I, and it's not just writers like real yeah. readers like real our readers too. they're the same yep. way like yep. you meet them you're totally boom. right you know yep. you're 100 yeah. right. now you know i have a um, note on my clipboard by my um when i do the show and it says it's a note to myself and it says be vulnerable ah, i love that and i think um i think the best writers to me in their personal life and in their fiction are vulnerable. They, yeah, yeah, they kind of strip away the stuff that most of us would try to hide. Yeah. That's so true. On the page. Yeah. What? (laughs) We just put it on the page, right? Well, and we tell people it's, it's, it it is fiction. I mean, when people, you know, I've had so many people say to me, wow, you all your characters have had terrible marriages and terrible lives. And are you married? <laughs> I have to say, yeah. <laughs> it's not, I mean, I make stories up, but they come. We all make stories up and Jean makes stories up, and but they come from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's a good point. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we kind of help each other with our stories. I mean, all of us have put up SOS flags, right? Yep. Yes, when we need it. When, Absolutely. yeah. I was thinking about when I was trying desperately to hand in Bright Lights Big Christmas. Patty, I said, I don't know, did I send out the SOS to you? Were we together? Or did I just send you the last chapter and say, I don't know how to end oh. it? No, I was at the house. I was staying in the squirrel's nest. And I came down and you were like, SOS flags were coming out of your ears. And I was like, <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? And you said, I don't know how to end it. And I grabbed the laptop and I read the last couple of chapters and we solved it. Yeah. Yeah. That's but amazing. Patty said, why? You you don't need all this stuff. Yep. Just, yeah. uh, just do this. And I'm like, oh, okay. I couldn't see that. None of us can. That's why we no. have, all have each other, including Jean. Jean's still well, backstage. Bring her out. Jean, yeah. Come on. come on, bring her on. Keep talking to us. Oh, hi. Hey, Jean. Hello, <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't go off. Like, you guys are so no, fascinating. and I love seeing the after show and hearing you just kind of chat and be relaxed. And I think that's such a great thing that you do, you know, just to kind of hang out with everybody and talk. Okay. But so now that you're here, I want to know how you had time to read when you were a kid. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I used to hide in my bed with a flashlight. I mean, I'm sure you guys can identify. I know. Yeah. I know. It was like my favorite, favorite thing to do. And it still is. I mean, it's the thing I do to relax. It's the thing, you know, it's it's the best thing. And so any extra moment I had, I would, I would just like read. And it was my escape. You know, but it was also my inspiration. It was my way of learning about things. I mean, because I really did not get taught a lot of the normal things that you should be taught by your parents. And so I learned that all from books. I guess that's why I'm so, um, you know, obsessed with books. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Was, but, there any, was there anyone in your family who said, you know, reading is good or give her a book or well i mean librarians right i mean i think the librarians were really life-changing for me my public library um was a a really important place you know for me as a, a like emotional physical refuge that was clean and warm and everything else to this day i have a really deep connection to libraries and i i mean i don't know if you know but my debut novel 
Gone translation is taught in schools around the world and is being banned all across America as we speak. Uh, like it is, um, it's challenged. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's true. It's true. And that's one of the things that I, you know, I flew in to defend it uh, in person from being removed from a school library because there's no, there's no sex in it. There's no violence in it. There's really no reason to ban it except that it's about, it's an immigrant story. Um, so that could make make somebody uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. By the way, I have to say, I think books should make people uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's well, about pushing say, us out of our comfort zone. And there's zone. a completely different level of understanding. Like when you watch some, you know, kind of random personality-less like image somewhere, you have a very different feeling than when you've spent 400 pages with someone that you fall in love with and you relate to and you understand that like they're thinking about the same things you're thinking about and they're worrying yeah. about the same things you're worrying about, except like times a million because their life is a million times harder than yours. But you have that yeah. like human... Yeah, I think it's so important. I mean, and it's proven. It's proven. Like readers are much more empathetic humans because they understand children, children especially. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel filled up to the tippy top. I know. I know. I'm like, I'm like oh, right girl. here. I feel Jean, filled up with goodness Jean. and lights. Gene, are you going to be? Are you going to be at the same writers' workshop as Patty and me? Are you going to be at the same? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And are you are you guys going to Hawaii too? Yeah. You're gonna be the coin? Oh yes. my god! Oh, we're gonna have such a good time. Oh, that is amazing. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Not only yeah, me too, now I wanna go without us, but you get to hang and out. You should okay, go. we'll rope you guys in. Yeah, that's amazing. No, and I mean, I think we're all teaching there as well. So, you know, if anybody wants to come take our class, come to Hawaii. It's going to be a horrible experience, you know. (laughs) Come to Hawaii. We're going to make you dig in cocktails. And we're going to make you dig up your compost pile and write write it Under a palm tree with a nice drink in your hand. It's going to be so hard. So anyone want to live the hard life? I know. That's right. That's right. Jean, thank you so much for being with us tonight. We loved having you. We loved your honesty. We loved your openness. We loved your heart. And we're um, we're just so excited you're here. And we're so excited your book is out in the world. Yeah. Thank you. I actually, thank you. I actually really have to go now. I just wanted to thank you. I have an event tonight. But what can can I leave by myself or do I have to wait for a no, show? We're, 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 we're <laughs> end, ending this show right now. So everyone out there, we'll be back. We'll be back next week to welcome Lori Rayner Day, author okay. of The Death of Us. We'll see you next Wednesday night. Thanks, Jean. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Jean. Good night. You Thanks, soon. guys. Bye. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here.